Welcome to today's economic briefing with Westpac's chief economist, Bill Evans. Uh, I'm Gil Lima, and I'm the chief executive of the Westpac Business Division. Uh, firstly, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which our webcast is taking place today, the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation, and pay my respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging, as well as those Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people among us on the webcast today. It's a privilege to be here once again with you, uh, customers who have chosen to bank with Westpac, St. George, Bank of Melbourne, and Bank SA. The environment continues to be extremely challenging. The whole situation in Victoria caught everyone by surprise and has just demonstrated how fragile the equilibrium is with the whole COVID-19 situation. There's a lot of uncertainty around employment right now, and we have been working very closely with the ABA as well as government on how we avoid a potential fragile situation in September, what, what many people have been calling the September cliff. I think the most important thing I, I want to reinforce to all of you is we're here to help. Westpac is an extremely strong institution, and we have a very important role to help Australians, and we're here to help all of you. Now, a few logistics. Uh, if you experience any problem uh, due to technology, please uh, rest assured there is a replay, uh, and there is a link that is going to be open for that. Uh, if you want to ask questions, there is a text box uh, underneath the video screen. Thank you so much for those of you who have already submitted questions in advance. Uh, we hope that you find the session valuable. And now I'm going to hand over to Bill Evans. Well, thank you very much, Gil. And uh, I envy you greatly for being safely up there in Sydney, whereas I'm down here in Melbourne. But I have to say to you, last night was a big celebration night in Melbourne. All the restaurants were full, people getting ready for the lockdown again. So I hope no damage was done last night, but certainly there was a lot of, um, a lot of activity uh, in the area that I was involved with anyway. Um, let me, what I wanted to do is talk today about the economy, the markets, and some of the risks that we have in mind. Uh, there'll be a particular emphasis on the outlook for policy, as Gil said, the so-called September cliff is something we need to have a, an idea about, and I'll give you my views on what that might look like. So let me start with our, with our growth forecasts. Uh, as you can see, it's a recession like nothing we've seen before, uh, much deeper than the 80s recession or the 90s recession, but we hope the rebound will be a lot sooner. We expect the rebound will be a lot sooner, uh, and the uh, economy will get back on some sort of a normal track by 2021-2022. Um, our current forecast is that the economy will contract by 7% in the June quarter, uh, rebound by about 1.2% in the September quarter, and then by 2.2% in the uh, December quarter. That means that over the year, the economy will contract by about 4.2%. As Gil pointed out, we had the dislocation in Victoria um, yesterday. We heard about the, uh, the shutdown. That's affected our forecast numbers somewhat. 
before the Victorian effect, we had the economy contracting by 4%, not 4.2%. Uh, and we had the economy rebounding by 1.5% in the third quarter rather than 1.2%. There's a few assumptions around that. The first one is that uh, the confidence effects uh, will be manageable, and we'll find out about that uh, next week when we see the consumer sentiment story. Uh, and I think the main vulnerability of confidence is going to be whether there is a, um, a spillover um, shutdown effect in one of in, in New South Wales. I guess we have to feel confident that the Victorian authorities learned from New South Wales problems with cruise ships, and New South Wales will be learning from the Victorian problems with uh, with quarantining uh, arrivals. So I suspect that the New South Wales won't be making the errors that we, we saw in Victoria uh, and will be extremely scrupulous to try and contain that, uh, that second round. So our core forecasts don't expect to see a follow-through uh, shutdown in New South Wales. Um, the, the story for, the, um, for the, the cases in Victoria is pretty frightening, really, uh, I was surprised when I looked at this to notice that the number of new cases is now higher than it was during that uh, scary period that we had in the second half of March. And, of course, the confirmed cases is, is much, much higher. So the shutdown decision was fairly clear just looking at those numbers. And, of course, the shutdown decision is going to be for four to six weeks. How important is Victoria to the Australian economy? Uh, Victoria itself by population is 27% of the Australian economy and Melbourne um, of that 27%, 20% is Melbourne. So the Melbourne economy is 20% of the national economy. In our numbers, we've assumed another 5% of the economy will be affected in the way Melbourne will be affected. But bear in mind, the important point is that in that in that um, uh June quarter, the economy fell by, we expect, contracted by 7%, but that was from what I would call a sort of a normal level of activity in the March quarter, whereas if we look at what's going to happen in Melbourne this time around, the economy had only really just started tentatively to recover, so the base is much lower than it was back in March, uh, and that's why I'm expecting only around about a 1% contraction in the, uh, in the Melbourne economy uh, over the next six weeks. And the assumption is that the rest of the economy continues along the lines that we were expecting before, with the exception of about 5% of the economy, such as border effects, interstate travel, and some, air, some measure of uh, a confidence effect that will come through uh, next uh, when we see the measures from next week. As I said, confidence has picked up. Uh, the Westpac Consumer Sentiment Index collapsed by 17% in, the, um, in, in, in April. It's recovered most of that lost ground. Sitting there now, it's, a, it's around about 5% below uh, the average level we saw between September and February. So still below uh, where I would say where it was before, and before it was at fairly low levels. So we're still dealing with an economy that's uh, pretty challenged from a confidence perspective. We've seen a similar rebound in business confidence so the confidence story is on the up, uh, and of course it will depend, and we'll see next week, how much of an impact the Melbourne shutdown is going to have on national confidence, because as, you, as you're aware, the confidence in other parts of the country, 
with particularly with the reopening of the Queensland New South Wales border, uh, has lifted quite substantially. So I would expect to see ongoing decent recovery in confidence, with the exception of what we're going to see in Melbourne. Let me now comment for a moment on the fiscal position. Um, that's really very important for the Australian economy. So you can see uh, this week we released some revised numbers for the budget deficit for 2021. Uh, we now have that at $240 billion. Uh, that's coming off a $95 billion for 1920. And as you can see, the level of that blowout in the, in the Commonwealth deficit is just extraordinary. Um, compare that with the situation we had during the GFC, uh, where we saw the blowout to around about uh, $50 billion, and you can see the extent of this particular fiscal response. Uh, and even compare it uh, compared to the deficits that we saw back in the early 90s. So government policy has been a lot more aggressive this time around and quite, quite appropriately so. Um, just to run you through the various policies that the government has introduced uh, on this, in this particular cycle, there'll be a total of $23 billion. This is income, income payments. To, uh, there's one, one, one payment in the, the 1920 year, the next one's coming in July. About 50% of those payments are going to pensioners. Uh, the JobKeeper payments that I'll talk about a bit more later on, totalling of $70 billion, that's on the assumption that the, that the, that the policy ends at the end of September. Uh, then, of course, we've got the uh, uh, cash, cash flow support for businesses, Related to their um, to their PA to their their, their PAYE deductions for their workers up to a maximum of fifty thousand. One of those payments came in April. The other one, which is worth about seventeen billion, uh, will come in July. And I wouldn't expect those that that system to be extended at all. Then we've got some small costs around investment incentives, apprentices, uh, and we have the uh, credit income guarantee. 15 billion of that is the AOFM purchasing securities, particularly in the in the mortgage-backed security market, and 20 billion in terms of guarantees. And then, of course, we have the 90 billion from the Reserve Bank funding facility that the banks are now starting to use. But with the high degree of liquidity in the banking system at the moment, the banks have been quite slow to take that up, even though it's 0.25 percent for three years. So. Apart, all of those policies are pretty much set to expire in the next few months, with, of course, the big one, the JobKeeper policy, expected to expire in September. So where do we get our $240 billion budget deficit from for this year? Well, one part of the deficit will be what I call the cyclical deficit, and that's the part of the deficit that's associated with the slowdown in the economy with the, with the recession. So tax payments uh, fall and uh, expenditure payments rise. So that $100 billion is based upon our forecast for growth next year, based upon the, the, the deficit that we saw in the previous year of $95 billion, around, 40 of, uh, around um, uh, 50 of which, 55 of which was that particular cyclical deficit. We've then got the $90 billion of the existing stimulus, um, so it's the, the final two pay, the final six months of 
sorry, the three months of job, of, of job, uh, job, job keeper for the September quarter. Um, we've, we've also got um, uh, other stimulus that I've talked to in the previous slide. And then I've got what I, co I call the extension of JobKeeper. So it's my view that the JobKeeper won't expire at the end of September. There will be an extension. And we're arguing that about a third of workers will be able to extend their JobKeeper for three months. And then about a half of that will get a further extension for six months into next year. That'll cost around $24 billion. I'll say a little bit more about where I think that, uh, that those benefits would be placed. The other big issue is around JobSeeker. As you know, the unemployment benefits were about $620 a fortnight going into the, uh, the COVID crisis. And unemployment benefits were lifted to $1,150. Broadly speaking, obviously different allowances for different types of unemployed people, but broadly speaking, up around about $500. Um, now, that payment is very close to the minimum wage of $1,500 a fortnight. So if we were to keep that payment in place, it'll become very difficult for business to attract workers. Workers won't really feel incentivised to, uh, to, to go and work for $1,500 a fortnight when they can get $1,150 uh, on seeker. So that number will be cut at the end of September, but I think we all accept that $620 a fortnight is too low. We're estimating about $850 a fortnight uh, going forward. That'll cost the government $11 billion over the course of the rest of this year. And finally, we've got the October budget. Um, and I expect that to be a stimulatory budget. Some of you might know that for about the last 12 months, I've been arguing that the government should bring forward the tax cuts that have been uh, legislated to start in July 2022. They cost about $14 billion a year. Uh, the, the aspects of, that, of those tax cuts are that at the moment uh, you're on a 19% tax rate um, uh, between $18,200 and um, uh, $37,000. That tax cut would, would keep you on 19% until $45,000. At the moment you're on 32,000, 32.5% tax um, between uh, 37,000 and uh, 90,000, you'd now be moving, you wouldn't move on to the 32.5 until 45,000, you'd stay there till 120,000. Uh, and 37% would job would come in at, at 120,000, out to 180,000. The reason why I'm telling you this, this detail is that I was pretty encouraged uh, with some media coverage in the last day or so suggesting that the government is looking very closely at doing exactly that, bringing forward those tax cuts, costing about $7 billion. And the good thing about that policy would be that it's not ongoing, whereas if you lift the dole payments, which I think they'll have to do, they'll be there forever, whereas this one is really only a fill-in until uh, July 2022 uh, when the ta tax cuts were going to happen anyway. So I think that's something that we can look forward to in October, some tax cuts, uh, I've been arguing strongly, and I, I expect some of you won't be happy to hear this. I know you've had the tax cuts for small business. For larger business, those tax cuts have never actually come through. Uh, I think that it's better to try and stimulate the economy via cuts for the household sector than it is for, the, for, uh, for big business. 
So I think if big business gets tax cuts in this current environment, it's more likely to save the money or uh, uh, pay down debt or to increase uh, dividend payments rather than actually invest and employ. Whereas if demand is, in, is improved by further tax cuts uh, and helping the household sector with their particular financial challenges at the moment, that will be a better way to stimulate the economy. I expect there'll also be obviously some infrastructure spending in that budget uh, and also some um, potentially some further one-off payments along the lines of the ones that, uh, that, we, that we saw in April and that we're going to see again in July. So that's how I get to the $240 billion. It's a big number, uh, but it's, uh, it's something that I think the economy is going to be needing. So saying a little bit more about, uh, about JobKeeper, uh, these, this is data that, that we found quite a, in quite a, an obscure source, which was a Senate Estimates uh, uh, study. These are actually the number of people in various industries who are on JobKeeper. So 3.4 million people are now registered for JobKeeper. 400,000 are in the professional services sector. 385,000 in the health sector. 350,000 in construction. 315,000 in hospitality. 315,000 in retail. 240,000 in manufacturing. 157,000 in, uh, in transport. 129,000 in recreation. And then there's a lot of other industries. Of course, they add up to quite a large number. But those ones explain about two-thirds of the, where the, what industries the workers are currently in that are receiving JobKeeper. So the question is, which industries might continue to get an extension? I think there'll be two categories. If you see hospitality, 315,000, and recreation, 129,000, I would expect the bulk of those sectors will continue to get JobKeeper because they're the ones that will continue to be affected by the ban on international travel and by the social distancing, particularly the social distancing. Um, within, the, um, within the transport sector, around 50,000 associated with air travel, you'd expect those would be getting it as well. But that only explains about a third of the, about half of the, the third that I think will get further support. And I think there will be individual cases of firms who are able to demonstrate an indirect impact of the, of the social distancing and the foreign travel issues uh, and also are able to demonstrate that they still qualify under those conditions we saw back in, uh, back in March, April, where you needed a 30% fall in your, re in your turnover, uh, projected or actual, over that month. So I think you'll see there'll be some businesses that are not in those two heavily affected sectors that will still get some JobKeeper. And, the, and the, another survey that I found from the Bureau of Statistics is quite confronting with regard to that. So this question, in this survey, businesses were asked, um, how many, are you still facing a 50% fall in your revenue in the month of June? So in those surveys, 53% of, of businesses that were surveyed in hospitality were saying, yes, we're still facing a 50% fall. 46% in recreation, 42% in communication, and even 19% in retail and 15% in construction. So there are still businesses that, despite the recovery that we've seen through the June quarter and the boost that the economy is getting from JobKeeper, there are still businesses uh, that are facing more than a 50% fall in their revenue. 
Uh, I think many of those businesses will be in a good position, along with the hospitality and recreation sectors, uh, to have a case for an extension of JobKeeper on a case-by-case basis rather than right across the board that we've seen uh, so far. Let me now focus for a moment on the unemployment problem. So we, we expect that the unemployment rate will get to 8% by the end of this year. And the problem for Australia is that when we've seen the unemployment rate in the past jump through recessions, it's taken a long time to get back to the previous level of unemployment. So in the, uh, in the early 80s recession, it took over five years. It took over, over eight years. In the early 90s recession, 15 years. After the GFC, 12 years later, the unemployment rate was still not back at that 4% level that we had going into the GFC. So the big challenge is going to be to try and get that unemployment rate down as quickly as possible. Um, The issue is even more challenging than that because even though we're sitting here at the moment with a 7.1% unemployment rate for May, it's the last data that we have, uh, really if you hadn't have had over 500,000 people leaving the workforce saying I'm not, I'm not trying for a job either because I cannot find time to find the job or I'm locked down or whatever, uh, the unemployment rate actually would have been 11.4%. So we are dealing with a very, very difficult labour market at the moment and the government needs to be very focused on trying to get that unemployment rate down. Our view is that by the middle of 2022, the unemployment rate will still be over 6%. Uh, despite a recovery in growth in the economy next year and in 2022. So that does represent the big challenge for the economy and will be the thing that will be at the foremost in the thinking of the government as they try and decide how they respond uh, over the next six months. The other big issue that we need to think about is population growth. So our forecasts are that population growth will fall to around 1% next year uh, from the 1.4% that we saw in 2019. That's, if anything, that's an optimistic forecast because bear in mind how important uh, net migration is to our population growth. Now, the Prime Minister has indeed said that he expected that uh, in in, uh, 2020, 2021, net migration will fall by 85%. And that, of course, is directly contingent upon the bans on on overseas travel. Uh, It's interesting when you delve a little further into the population story, because I think most of us think that the main main contributor to net migration is actually permanent uh, permanent resident, permanent people getting permanent visas. Actually, that's not the case. So in the year to June 2019, only 57,000 of the 250,000 uh, of people who gained, who, who were net migration were on permanent visas. The rest were on temporary visas. And it was dominated by foreign students. 112,000, nearly 50%, were coming from foreign students. Other temporary visas were around um, uh, work, uh, temporary work permits, uh, uh, working holidays, uh, Uh, tourists who require a visa. So our population story is not not that much about the permanent net migration. It's very much now driven by this 
temporary net migration and dominated by the students. And as we saw, as we've seen recently, of course, visitor arrivals have collapsed. Uh, there's been some encouraging re- uh, signs around uh, education around foreign students. And my point is that we need to look at these foreign students as an export sector. It's not part of this big population debate for Australia. It's an export sector and we need to find ways to keep the flow of foreign students going. We need to find ways around quarantine, around supporting universities to ensure that the foreign student flow, which is a very strong export sector for us, is maintained. Because uh, without that, our population growth will be adversely affected. As I said, of over 250,000 net migration in 2019, only around 50,000 of that was permanent migrants. This is family reunions, um, uh, permanent skill base or um, uh, uh, refugees. So for Australia, the issue has evolved to becoming very much one around these foreign students and other temporary visas. And when you look at the state story, it's quite, quite um, confronting. So the red bar looks at the contribution to population growth uh, for each of the states, and the grey bar is the natural contribution. Uh, the red bar is from migration. The grey bar is from uh, natural. And then, of course, you've got this complication, the purple bar, interstate migration. So New South Wales always loses people to the other states. Uh, Victoria gains, uh, Queensland gains, particularly because of uh, strong um, housing affordability. And South Australia always loses because of lack of, generally because of lack of job opportunities. But the red bar dominates. So if I was to say to look at New South Wales, uh, population growth around 1.6%, 1.3 percentage points is coming from net migration. So without net migration, you would have uh, New South Wales population growth around 0.3%. For Victoria, um, without net migration, population growth would fall to 0.7%. For Queensland, not so exposed, 1.1%. For South Australia, it would be down something like 0.3%. So the reliance that this, each of the states has on net migration is significant, and the threat that we're currently seeing about the collapse in net migration will be felt quite badly across the states. And, of course, Victoria and New South Wales will be the main sufferers. And, of course, as we know, they're the two states that have been the most successful in attracting uh, foreign uh, foreign students. So we need to think about policies to try and find ways to to, to reboot particularly the foreign student story around quarantine, around very strict controls, because the Australian economy is incredibly reliant upon that temporary migration that we're seeing through the students, uh, the temporary work visas, etc. And if we look at, say, uh, dwelling dwelling completions, the big impact of this collapse in population is going to be be around dwelling approvals. Uh, As you can see, we're expecting to see this big fall. Uh, And, of course, given how important we see these students, so uh, developments around inner-city, high-rise, uh, around other parts of the of the of the state of the cities that cater for students will be very important in terms of the impact this will have upon um, upon migration. So let me say a little bit about um, our Westpac Consumer Sentiment Index. 
when we saw the really strong bounce back in, um, in May and June, one of the indexes really didn't participate in that, and that was the House Price Expectations Index. We were seeing really strong recovery and confidence around the economy, around finances, as the economy started to reopen, but there wasn't a lot of ongoing confidence about the outlook for house price expectations. And indeed, in the April, in the April survey, we saw a 50% fall in that index with not a lot of recovery. I talked to you before about the impact from population growth. That is going to be a factor for the housing market. I talked to you before about that ongoing high level of unemployment. I think that's going to be another factor because while interest rates are incredibly low uh, and people can afford large mortgages, I think with this uncertainty about uh, job security, uh, people are going to be nervous to um, to sort of borrow large amounts of money uh, in this current environment. We've also seen uh, a substantial lift in vacancy rates. Uh, particularly directly related to this big slowdown in population growth. So our forecast for house prices for the remainder over the course of 2020, uh, we've got a 10% fall in Sydney, 12% in Melbourne. Of course, the risks in Melbourne now are higher as a result of these risks of this re- reclosing of the economy. 8% in Brisbane. Uh, and generally a 10% fall in house prices over the nation over the course of 2020. That might sound a little too a little pessimistic, uh, but all the signals I'm seeing around confidence, uh, around the outlook for house prices, confidence in house prices, around the outlook for the unemployment rate, suggests to me that we need to be prepared to see that fall in house prices over the course of the rest of this year. Another big issue that is worth considering relates to to trade tensions with China. So we understand China is our biggest trading partner. We we export about $150 a year to China. Um, And it's very important to look at the various parts of our export sector to China. So iron ore is by far our biggest export, uh, about $65 billion in iron ore. LNG around around 20 billion uh, and gold and base metals total around 100 billion of exports that I think are very safe. China is uh, industrialising again. We're expecting that growth in China over this year will be about four percent. Now that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you think that the economy contracted by 10 percent in the first quarter, that's saying in the final three quarters they're going to try and catch up almost. To, cat, to, to almost get back to where they normally would have expected to have been. That's a 14% growth rate over three quarters. So China is going to need those commodities. So I'm very comfortable that the trade tensions will not really spill over into that 100 billion of the 150 billion. But the other commodities I think of, of, of coal, I think have a real risk. So about, about 17 billion in coal, about half in metallurgical and half in, in thermal coal. Uh, China's blocked those in the past. They only they only need about 10% from the rest of the world in their coal sectors, uh, and of course there's this downtrend in the in in uh, demand for thermal coal anyway. So I think the coal sector looks vulnerable. We talked before about services. About 12 billion is students. Six billion is tourism. Uh, we've seen some of the issues around. China discouraging their students from coming to Australia. We've seen the difficulties that they're having, of course, with border controls and, of course, the elimination of tourism. So that $18 billion looks quite risky. 
And then we've got, um, and then we have about 13 billion in agriculture uh, and about 3 billion in meat, in, uh, uh, three in wool, uh, one in wine, one in cotton, one in dairy. We saw the story with barley. Any of those sectors can be affected by trade tensions. So the way I look at China, I say, yes, $150 billion is a lot of money, and yes, $100 billion looks safe, but there's various question marks about that other $50 billion. Finally, if we can say a little bit about markets, uh, you've been inundated with these pictures about the extraordinary problems that the world is having in containing COVID. Um, we, we, we absolutely uh, realise that there could be concerns with global markets if we don't get some stability in these numbers. At the moment, our core forecasts are assuming stability. But if you, t- if you take, say, the US... US economy contracted by 10%, we think, in the first half of the year. Uh, we're only expecting about a 2% recovery in the second half of the year to have the economy down by 8% for the year. But that's assuming that in the third and the fourth quarters, uh, growth will be modest but go sideways, not another major uh, collapse in growth that would be associated with a national shutdown. That's possible, and that, of course, would have implications for uh, markets in particular. But our general central view is that things will muddle along uh, and next year will be a better year. And, of course, we can't ignore the possibility of a vaccine and we can't ignore the possibility of antiviral drugs. And as time goes by, uh, the likelihood of that happening uh, must become more, more, uh, more apparent. Finally, our forecast for the markets Reserve Bank is on hold for a long period of time. Uh, The cash rate of 0.25% will be there, I believe, until beyond 2023. Uh, The economy will not be in a position that it's necessary to raise interest rates. Uh, And the Reserve Bank has indicated that they don't want to um, cut rates. I've argued in in other quarters about the benefits of negative interest rates. If we did have negative interest rates, those rates would not be affecting retail borrowers or mortgage borrowers uh, or small business, but they they would be affecting the wholesale market. And the big benefit would be through the currency. Imagine a small open economy with large foreign liabilities offering investors a negative rate. You'd have to offer them a pretty cheap currency to fund those, those foreign liabilities. But the Reserve Bank is absolutely opposed to that, extraordinarily unlikely. So it doesn't figure in our core forecasts. Uh, We expect the three-year bond rate to hold at that 0.25. I would expect that by the second half of of 2022, we'll be starting to see a lift in that three-year bond rate. The 10-year bond rate, I expect, will lift uh, next year uh, because we do expect to see the um, uh, interest rates rising at the long end of the curve as the the market has to absorb that $240 budget deficit this year, and we know the Reserve Bank wants to anchor the short end of the curve around 0.25. The Aussie dollar, um, if I'm looking at China and saying that China's going to be growing around 14% in the final three quarters of of 2020, and the US is going to be growing at, at best around zero in the second half of 2020, That says to me that the Aussie dollar will benefit from the strong China uh, and the US dollar will come under some threat from a disappointing profile for the US. So 
we're pretty comfortable that the Aussie dollar will get find its way to 72 cents by the end of the year. Of course, the headwinds around the concerns about global risk, particularly if the US is, uh, starts to contract, will contain how much more rapidly the Aussie dollar moves. But I think it's safe to think of the Aussie dollar as being on an upward path. Next year, we've got global growth lifting from minus 5% this year to plus 5% next year. That will be a very constructive environment for the Aussie dollar around the commodity story, around the risk story, uh, and we would expect the Aussie dollar to be up around 76 cents. But as I said, that may start to create issues for the central bank. Their current forecast for the Aussie dollar is 64 cents over that period. So dealing with a 76 cent Aussie dollar may start them, may get them starting to think about other ways to deal with the Aussie dollar. And of course, the two ways are negative interest rates and what I call unsterilised intervention, which is to go out into the market, sell Aussie dollars and buy securities in other currencies. They've never done that, uh, but that is also something that is a possibility as we go through uh, 2022. Thank you very much. Let me just let me com- conclude with my f- with my summary. Fiscal policy: more stimulus is required. I'm confident we'll see that uh, over the course of the next three months. The deficit for 240 billion. I'm expecting an extension to JobKeeper. The unemployment rate is going to remain high. I think the Melbourne shutdown will reduce growth nationally by about 0.2 percentage points as long as we don't see a massive spillover to confidence uh, across the country. Population and immigration are big challenges. Don't overlook the importance of the foreign students uh, and don't give too much weight to permanent migrants in this overall net migration story. It's very much around temporary migrants. They should be seen in a way to be export sectors rather than contributing to the major population challenges. China tensions will impact our exports and up to a risk of around 50 billion. House prices down 10%, domestic rates on hold, Aussie to 76 cents by the end of next year. And the global recovery next year uh, will support that lift in the Aussie dollar. But over the course of this year, undoubted risks about shutdowns, particularly delaying the potential recovery in the US. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. Uh, We've just got a few questions that I will uh, ask you now. The first question is, what do you see as the potential impact on Australian businesses of the continuing increasing numbers in the US, UK and some parts of Europe? In particular, do you see debt markets easing or remaining contracted? Oh, look, I think it's been pretty clear that central banks are determined to to keep debt markets open. The big turning point in the US share market and therefore the global markets was in, um, in, late Mar- in mid-March when the US Federal Reserve indicated its preparedness to support markets. So not only were they buying uh, government bonds and buying asset-backed securities, uh, they indicated that they were going to be supporting syndicated loans, they were going to be supporting uh, ETFs, uh, they were going to be supporting um, uh, loans to small business, to um, Uh, local government and indeed I expect that the US Federal Reserve balance sheet that started before the GFC at 1 trillion, came out of the GFC at 2 trillion, came into this crisis at 4 trillion with the QE policies that we saw 
uh, will reach $10 trillion. So the commitment of governments to maintain liquidity, I think, is very high, uh, and I think that will be the key factor in hold, keeping markets open and putting decent, uh, decent support behind liquidity. Thanks, Bill. Next question. How likely is it that the government will increase taxation in the next two years, and which areas do you think these changes may target? You know, there's a, there's a strong feeling around the official family now that government debt isn't as bad as we think it is. Um, so we've seen, with my numbers, we'll see our net government debt rise from 19% of GDP to about 37% of GDP. The US is around 120% of GDP. The government can fund that debt at around 1% at the moment. In the three-year part, 0.25%. That's going to stay in place for some years. The economy will will recover. We're expecting a 3% growth rate next year and around 2.5% in 2022. If you're borrowing at 1% and your economy is growing at that pace, your government debt is not putting a weight on your economy. In fact, it's becoming a, a smaller part of the economy as you move forward. So my view is that the debate around the government is no longer this fear about increasing government debt. And heaven forbid the fear about raising taxes in this current environment. 2023 is going to be an election year. Can you imagine the government wanting to raise taxes in 2022 or 2020? Sorry, 2022 is going to be an election year. Can you imagine wanting to raise taxes in 2021 or 2022 at a time particularly when the debate is moving towards what's so bad about debt when the rest of the world has such high debt and the ability to fund it is so, so easy at these interest rates? And I'm not expecting that interest rate story, the the long bond rate to cross over the growth rate in the economy for many, many, many years, long long after these governments go. So the idea of raising taxes, I think, is is absolutely minimal. Thanks, Bill. The next question is actually for Gil in Sydney. Gil, what else will the banks do to support business given the ongoing nature of COVID-19? Uh, thank you for the question. Uh, really good one. Uh, look, there has been a lot of discussion almost daily uh, between the ABA uh, with, with the other banks, uh, regulators, government. Everyone is very, very committed in, in watching the situation very closely uh, so that we can act decisively. Uh, specifically, we, we have done a couple of things uh, that, that have been announced earlier this week. Uh, we are going to be extending uh, for our small business clients uh, the deferral of business lending up to another four months um, and uh, so that we can avoid uh, a cliff in September with all the, the different packages that would be actually expiring in that date. Uh, so that's uh, one thing that we have announced earlier this week. The second one is we are particularly concerned on being able to understand and being close to clients that are going through uh, specific challenges uh, COVID-related in this period. Uh, So, for example, accommodation clients, clients that are in certain geographies that are being more affected than others. And in that sense, we have created a group of dedicated relationship managers 
that are going to be being close to these clients uh, with a very specific set of training. Um, so look, we, we're very committed and, and there is a lot of action in place, uh, not only from Westpac, but I would say from the industry more broadly, government uh, and, and from regulators. Thanks, Gil. Uh, just a couple more for you, Bill, if you don't mind. Uh, the next question is, are you aware of any macroeconomic strategic cooperative discussions between G7 and G20 nations? I'll look at those, but uh, as we saw in the GFC, they can be very effective. I think the Fed is taking the lead on this. Uh, the Fed has continued to commit to supporting markets. Um, uh, the US government is is uh, quite open to further fiscal stimulus. Our own government, I believe, will announce further fiscal stimulus, substantial, as indicated in the presentation today. Uh, so I think that individually, governments know what they need to do. They need to support markets and they need to use fiscal policy to support their economies. And I think that will happen. Uh, discussions absolutely are helpful, but this one, I think, will be very much for each of the individual governments to deal with their, with their issues and with the key mantra being that fiscal policy is the way to go and there's plenty of scope to use fiscal policy to get through these issues. Thanks, Bill. Uh, just a couple more. What is your outlook for the Australian construction market, including commercial construction, and how might this be impacted by the cliff we may face later this year? Well, that's a huge question. That, that's that's a that's a, an hour in its own right, and I'm not a particular expert on the on the property on that particular property sector. Obviously, market valuations have taken quite a hit. Um, as I as I pointed out, the outlook for construction, our approval numbers are almost going to halve over the next uh, six to nine months. Uh, we're looking at that big hit to population. Uh, we're looking at rising vacancy rates at the moment. Um, so I feel that the outlook for the construction cycle on the, on the residential side is very difficult. If we look at what's happened to valuations in the commercial side, undoubtedly with that sort of a shock to valuations, one would be surprised if we're seeing a lot of new supply coming through. And then we've got a lot of the structural questions about how COVID is going to affect economic behaviour. People working from home, people buying more online, that has implications for the retail sector, Working from home has implications for commercial property, for the office sector, uh, on the industrial front, um, uh, logistics obviously getting a strong boost at the moment with the link to, to online selling. So there's definitely pluses and minuses, but I think the major clear story is around residential uh, and I think that the other clear story is around the, the commercial office story as people are nervous about the impact how long will be this impact of working from home? We understand that there will be an offset, that people that are in the office will need more space. But one, I think the general market feeling is that the working from home will tend to offset that need for more space. So an oversupply of, of uh, commercial property uh, looms as a big risk, I think. Thanks, Bill. Just one more question. Will the RBA ever reduce interest rates from 0.25% down to 0% or is 0.25% the bottom for Australia and will money printing continue? Um, look, 
they could go to point two. They could go to zero. They could go to zero. But I think their their argument is always that um, the banks should be rewarded for their mo- the money that they leave on deposit with the RBA at a rate below the cash rate. Uh, so if they went to zero on the on the cash rate, they'd have to be charging the banks the banks uh, an interest rate on the money they have on on with the reserve bank. When you do quantitative easing, the reserve bank's portfolio expands on one side by buying bonds, but on the other side, uh, the liability is is deposits from the Australian banks. So if you do quantitative easing, you force the Australian banks to hold more deposits with the Reserve Bank. So that would be considered to be what I would call an unfair policy, to pursue quantitative easing, force the banks to put deposits on with them, and then charge them a fee for that. I believe that can be accommodated um, uh, in the way the Europeans have done. They've coped with negative interest rates by not penalising the banks for the money they have on reserve that's associated with quantitative easing, but to penalise them for money, excess money they have on reserve. For money that they have on reserve that they should be lending, then they pay a penalty, but not for that, that, for that level up until that point. They could do that on a, on a zero interest rate, but I think once you get to zero, uh, the idea of moving further into negative territory becomes a very real possibility. They've indicated to us that they're not looking at that at the moment. Uh, I, I think that has to be the central thinking of it around our forecast. But as I said, I have a fairly, I believe, convincing case to say that if things deteriorate more than I'm expecting and the currency is seen to be way out of line with the state of the economy, then a policy along those lines would be very, very attractive to the central bank. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, everyone who submitted questions. Uh, We'll throw back to Gil. We are out of time. Um, Over to you, Gil, to close. Thank you, Bill, for your insights and your time today. Um, So I hope you have all enjoyed uh, the the insights uh, from from Bill. Uh, We're here to help. So please keep talking to us, to your bankers, and let us know how we can help you during this very difficult period. Uh, Thank you for joining today, and we're going to see you again on the next event on 12th of August. Thank you.